Okay, we are in a series uh, in Revelation, and so I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you uh, are on a cell phone and you want to turn on your Bible or a tablet, uh, you can go for it. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read uh, this scripture in its entirety for us this uh, morning, and then what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, really discovering what does this mean for us. This is Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, are the words of him who holds seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. in your presence in our lives and for all of eternity. So God, I pray that you'd help us do that this morning. Give us a bigger, clearer picture of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, last week we had the privilege of having uh, Pastor Tim Beavis with us, uh, which was fantastic. He's a great guy. And if you missed that, uh, you might want to go online to our website or download our app and check that out again because that Revelation chapter 1 is going to be something that we actually go back to uh, time and time again. And I think, I think Tim did a fantastic job. He's one of my favorite preachers. Uh, but as we're in this book of, of this uh, study, Revelation chapter 1 through 3, called Dear Churches, uh, I want to give you just a little bit of background so we're kind of all on the same page. Uh, the book of Revelation is written by John, who was one of the original 12 disciples. He was chosen by Jesus. In fact, uh, we see in the Gospels that uh, Jesus and John had a special relationship uh, that of the 12 disciples, it seemed that uh, there were three that spent the most time to, with Jesus. That would be Peter, James, and John. You'll see them referred to that there would be time that Jesus just takes those three uh, to do things, to spend extra time with them. And of those three, uh, John is often referred to as uh, the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John written by John, 
in his own letter, he'll often refer to himself as the beloved disciple, which I just think is awesome. He's writing uh, the gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he just reminds the other guys like, oh yeah, he loved me a little more. And that's John. Uh, John, as he writes the book of Revelation, is about 90 years old. So he's an old man. Uh, all the other disciples have died. And I was just thinking about that this week, that, that if you just kind of knew all the guys who were with you, all the guys that walked alongside you, the, the people who were the leaders and the founders of the early church, they've all passed away or been murdered and martyred, and John is the last one alive. And they tried to kill John, but it didn't work. They actually boiled him in hot oil, but he survived. And so as an old man, they've exiled him to the island of Patmos, which is a prisoner island. And so John, at 90 years old, is there to live out the rest of his life on this prisoner island. And what John revealed to us last week is every Sunday, the Lord's Day, that the church would gather on Sundays because that was the day of the resurrection, that even in prison as an old man, that John set apart Sunday as a day to worship the Lord. And so on the island of Patmos, he's worshiping Jesus, and Jesus appears to him. But he has a vision of Jesus. And in this vision of Jesus, he gets this big, clear picture of who Jesus is. And he talks about Jesus in a way that I think is new to him, that he's never seen Jesus, because John was with Jesus. He was with Jesus for the three years he did ministry. He saw Jesus' life and his miracles and his teachings. He saw Jesus die on the cross for our sins. He saw him dead and buried, but he also saw him resurrected. We know that John spent the 40 days with Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension, where he went to be seated in heaven next to his father. And that John was a witness to all these things, but when he tells us about this new revelation that he sees, he talks about Jesus in a way that he'd never seen, that his hair is white, that he's powerful, that his face is like the sun. It's so bright that he's shining. My, my favorite is that he says that he literally has a sword coming out of his mouth and his legs are like bronze, which means when it comes to the gym, Jesus never skips leg day. All right, He's got some calves that are like a statue-like calf. Those are some rock-hard leg muscles he has going on. And Jesus begins to reveal to him, and so John says that this revelation is so great that he literally falls at Jesus' feet like a dead man, that he knows he's not worthy, that he sees how big and powerful and majestic Jesus is, and when he sees him, all he can do is worship him. And as John and Jesus have a conversation, one of the things that Jesus says is that he wants to address seven churches. So he asked John, hey, I want you to record this down and deliver it to these churches. Now, we're not exactly sure why these seven churches are chosen. Some people think that each of those churches represents seven types of churches. Uh, some people think that the seven churches represent seven different ages or, or, or timelines that the churches will go through. Uh, some even assume it's the seven churches because uh, it's actually the Roman postal route. So all of these seven churches would be on the same mail route. They'd have the same mailman. But anyway, Jesus says that he wants to address these seven churches, and he starts with the church in Ephesus. And I want to give you just a little bit of background on Ephesus because the city that the church is in 
is important. Ephesus is the largest, or it's one of the largest cities in Asia, Asia Minor at its time. Uh, they're not exactly sure how many people live there, but archaeologists and historians believe it was about 250,000 people lived there at the time. Now, Ephesus was a harbor city uh, that where boats would come in, commerce would come in, uh, sh- uh, ships that were, were filled with goods to be traded would all come into Ephesus. In fact, Ephesus was called the gateway to the providence. And so if you wanted to access Asia, odds were that you would come through Ephesus. But one of the things that's kind of interesting about Ephesus is that it had an amphitheater, an outdoor Roman-style amphitheater that would fit 25,000 people. So this is a big city. Uh, this is a, a city with a lots of people, lots of things going on. They have, like, they have their own big place to host uh, people and events and, and to do things. This is a place where ideas and people and goods come and go. In fact, what many people would say is Ephesus, in many ways, was the place where ideas, fashion, trade, everything started in Ephesus and then went out from Ephesus into the rest of Asia. One of the things that's interesting about Ephesus is it was home to a false god named Artemis. Uh, If you went to uh, public school like I did, you probably had to study Greek mythology. And so there's Artemis or Diana, same person, two different names. And and what they worshipped, that was the god of that town, Ephesus, was Artemis, that they worshipped her, they believed in her. And what's kind of important to note, we'll see this in a little bit, is when they started worshipping her, they had a tree. And there was a sacred tree, and they believed that tree represented her presence and her goodness and her faithfulness to the city. Eventually, what we find out is that a meteor falls from the sky and and hits Ephesus. In fact, it lands pretty close to the tree. And so what the people and the priests decide is that the meteor was a gift from Artemis to the people of Ephesus. And so what they do is they actually create a huge temple to Artemis. They build above the meteor, they include the tree, uh, they build everything in there. It, it is uh, actually a huge temple. In fact, it's actually considered one of the seven wonders of the world. That's how big, that's how majestic, that's how, how this thing stands out. In fact, we see in Acts 19 that it is Paul goes to Ephesus because he goes there several times. He helps plant a church there. In fact, he goes on three trips to Ephesus, and one of the trips, he spends two years there. And so many people get saved by the gospel. So many people begin to believe in Jesus that Acts 19 tells us that a riot almost breaks out because the temple drives the economy. Uh, The temple drives the political atmosphere. Uh, Everything in Ephesus begins and ends with Artemis or the current emperor. And they worshiped both. In fact, in Ephesus, you would normally go to the temple and worship Artemis and ask for a blessing in your business and in your life. And then also you would worship whoever was the emperor. They're currently excavating uh, Ephesus. And as they're finding, they're finding that there's signs all over the city that are high and elevated. And they say things like, Caesar is never wrong. And so you're always reminded in Ephesus, wherever you are, that Caesar is above you. He is to be worshipped. And he's never to be questioned because he's never 
wrong. And so this is kind of the spiritual atmosphere of Ephesus as you worship Artemis and you worship the emperor. But Paul shows up, they begin a church, and they begin to say, no, 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 there's someone greater, there's someone better, there's someone named Jesus who died in your place for your sins so that you can be saved. And the gospel goes from Ephesus into all of Asia. And so as John is on the island of Patmos, this is 30 to 40 years later. And so this letter is really to the next generation of believers in, in Ephesus. This is the, the, the kids who grew up in Ephesus. This is the new believers who have started going to Ephesus. But 30 or 40 years later, Jesus says, hey, I want to write a, a letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, now the way we're going to break this down, other scholars do it way better than I am, but we're going to break it down kind of, uh, we're going to do a little Western style. We're going to call this the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's how we're going to look at this this morning, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so this is how we're going to start. We're going to start with the good. This is, what, this is what God says, hey, here's some stuff that's really commendable. Here's some things that are good. He says, you work really hard. He goes, listen, I have to commend you on your good work. He goes, you guys work hard. You serve hard. There's all kinds of ministry happening in this town. And it's all because of you guys. That You guys live sacrificially. You put the time in. You use your gifts, your talents, your treasure, and your ability to serve within the local church, to serve people. You guys work hard. And he says, not only do you work hard, but you endure. And Jesus is really specific to say, you endure for my name's sake. And what we know is that it's difficult to be a Christian in Ephesus. It's difficult to worship Jesus in Ephesus. Because the whole world around you elevates and worships Artemis, and they also worship the emperor. And so just by worshiping Jesus, you could put your business in trouble. You could get in trouble politically because, wait a minute, you're telling us Jesus is greater than Caesar? Jesus is greater than our emperor? It means that you could lose your job, you could lose your finances, you could be killed because of what you believe because you're so countercultural. You are going against the gods they worship in the town. And Jesus says to them, you endure for my namesake. I think about the church in Ephesus, and I think uh, what I would define them as is they are a church that has grit. I like these guys. Uh, they, they are passionate about serving, that they all work together. That the way we say it at Redemption Church is we're a battleship, not a cruise ship. Like our, our question isn't, should we put in a bigger pool for us to enjoy on the cruise ship? Our question is, is how do we equip one another? How do we encourage one another? And how do we serve one another uh, to make disciples who reach the lost and make more disciples? And that's what this church sounds like to me. In fact, Jesus says, not only are you working hard and not only are you enduring hardship, he says you have sound doctrine. Look at the way he says it in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, starting, uh, we'll just go verses 2 through 3. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So he says, not only have you worked really hard and endured, 
He says, you guys love the truth. And you have really sound doctrine. And what would happen in Ephesus is we, we would have people who would come into the church and say, well, listen, like we, we're, we're excited about all this Jesus stuff, but we'd like to add a little to it. In fact, later in verse 6, we see that Jesus says, and you hate the Nicolaitans who I also hate. Which for many of us, if you grew up in Sunday school, you're like, I didn't think we were allowed to hate anybody. Like, I thought we weren't allowed to hate people. And I don't think we are supposed to hate people. I think what Jesus is saying is you hate the teachings and the theology of the Nicolaitans. What's interesting is we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. There's all kinds of assumptions, and one of the assumptions is that the Nicolaitans would come into the church and say, this is great, you're working hard, people are serving, uh, you love the Lord, there's ministries going on here. Uh, we'd like to come in as, as teachers, that people would show up and say, hey, we're even apostles, that we were chosen by Jesus. And so this church would begin to ask them questions and go, do you fit the description and the definition of the apostles? And they would tell people, no, you're not true, you're not real, you're not really honoring Jesus with your life. But the Nicolaitans would come in and say, hey, hey, here's the thing, Jesus understands. So we can do, we can worship Jesus, but we can also, we can go to Artemis Temple. Like, listen, if we go to Artemis Temple, our businesses stay funded, we stay connected to the community, we can worship, listen, you can worship Caesar as the Lord and Jesus as the Lord. And this works out for all of us. In fact, we can be more popular that way. The gospel might go down a little easier that way. More people wouldn't be offended. So we can do a little bit of Artemis. We can do a little bit of the emperor. And we can sprinkle on a little Jesus. And everybody will be happy. And the church in Ephesus said, no, it's Jesus alone. And, and they stood up for that. And so Jesus says, listen, you guys got some stuff going on, Ephesus. You work hard. You endure. You've not grown weary in your endurance. And you love the truth. That's the good. But then Jesus says, hey, there's also something bad. If we look at it uh, this way, he says in verses 4 to 6, he says, but I have this against you. He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now what Jesus says is, hey, the, the bad is you guys work hard, you love the truth, you're enduring, but you've lost that loving feeling. Oh, that loving feeling. And Jesus says, guys, here's the problem. You've lost the love. And he says, I want you to remember the love that you used to have, I want you to repent of this, and I want you to repeat. I want you to do what you used to do. Now, we have to kind of ask the question, what does Jesus mean they've lost the love? There's three possible meanings of this, and then I'll tell you where I land. The first one is this, is what Jesus could be saying to them is, hey, you've lost that loving feeling. You've lost your original love for God. But one of the things Jesus could be saying is You've, you don't love Jesus the way you used to. You don't worship your Father the way you used to. You don't listen to the Holy Spirit the way you used to. That'd be one meaning. Another meaning could be like, hey, you guys don't love one another like you used to. 
You guys used to be like a big, happy family, and now you just grumble and yell at each other. That could be one meaning. And the third one could be this, is that the church in Ephesus no longer loves the people around them. The church in Ephesus no longer loves people who are far from God. That the church has become about the church. That the church has become inwardly focused, that they care more about the people in the room than the people who've yet to be reached yet. In fact, one of the ways we could say it is the church has kind of become the safe place and everybody who's not part of the church is the enemy. So they've started building fences and walls to keep the evil people out and to keep the good people safe. As I've spent time studying this and praying through this this week, where I've arrived at with the help of other people, great commentators and scholars, is what I believe is the church in Ephesus has an identity issue. That because they forgot who God was, and because they've kind of forgotten about their relationship to God, I think they've ended up with an identity issue. See, the the church in Ephesus knew about Jesus. Paul was there. In fact, many people believe that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, who also wrote the Gospel of John, that John wrote the Gospel of John in Ephesus. In fact, we know from Christian history, both John and Jesus, the, or Mary, the mother of Jesus, are both buried in Ephesus. So the church in Ephesus knows Jesus. They know the Father. They know the Holy Spirit. But what's happened is, is they've forgotten that God loves us, that God wants us to be saved by Jesus, that he died on the cross in our place for our sins, that he's equipped us and empowered us with the Holy Spirit, and that we don't just exist for ourselves, that God loves you, but God also requires of you that you would love other people the same way that God first loves you. That's the way the scriptures say it is, uh, we'll look at Mark um, chapter 12, verse 30 and 31, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself there is no commandment greater than these now don't miss this this is an identity thing jesus is saying because you're so loved because you're forgiven because the holy spirit resides in you because you are fully loved and fully accepted Part of your identity is you walk in the love that your Father has for you that you've seen in Jesus. And not only do you walk in that for yourself, but you share that love with other people. That's part of our identity. And what's happened in the church in Ephesus is they become all head and all hands, but no heart. That they love their Bible studies. They love, hey, what, did, what was that word and what does it mean? And can we discover the true meaning? And what is that translation saying? What is that translation saying? Is there a famous pastor who has a teaching series on this that we could watch and download and then debate together? They've become all head. And they become all hands. They're like, hey, we work, we work, we work, we work, we work. Like, listen, if you want to be a part of this church, you better be in ministry and we can find a place for you. And guess what? Jesus commends them on that. But he condemns them saying, but you have no heart. You've lost 
your love. Now what I think Jesus is saying to them is that they have lost their love, not necessarily for God. And here's why I say that, because I don't think you would endure what they're enduring if you didn't love God. Like, if you really didn't love God, I don't know if you would live in a city where you could be killed or your business shut down or your family put at risk if you don't worship Artemis or if you don't worship the emperor. I think if you're lukewarm, you go with the Nicolaitans and go, let's just sprinkle on a little Jesus and be happy and merry and no conflict. So I think you've got to be sold out to Jesus. I think you've got to be sold out to the gospel to live where they live and to endure what they're doing and to dedicate their life to it. I also think that they, they probably haven't lost their love for one another because what we see through the course of history is that churches and people who are persecuted don't usually turn on one another. They gather together and love one another. See, I think what Jesus was saying is, hey guys, you work hard and you know me with your brains and you use your hands to serve me, but in your heart you've forgotten that I love you so much that I also want you to love other people. People And I think that for two reasons in the scripture. The first is, is every letter that we're going to see, Jesus always starts his letter with an introduction and a revelation of who he is. And to the church in Ephesus, he starts with the revelation that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the lampstands. Well, that's an image of authority. That's an image of power. That's an image of sovereignty that Jesus is like, I hold you in my right hand and I walk among your lampstands, which means not only am I with you, but I am highly aware of what's going on in your life because I hold your star in my hand and I monitor and walk among your lampstands. You go, well, why would Jesus introduce himself that way? Because it doesn't sound very loving. And I think Jesus introduces himself that way because there's fear in the church. I think he's going, I want you to remember who I am. I want you to remember that I'm all-powerful. I want you to remember that I'm greater than Artemis and I'm greater than Caesar and I'm greater than the people that oppose you. I am bigger and all-sufficient for what you need. So if you're afraid of sharing your faith, if you're afraid of evangelizing, don't forget who it is you're telling people about. It is me, the risen Lord Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among your lampstand. I think the second reason it has to do with their love for other people is because of what Jesus tells them to do. He says, I want you to remember the height from which you have fallen. Because I want you to think about your first love. I want you to think about the way that you used to love me. I want you to remember what that was like. But I also want you to repent. Now, repentance just means saying, you know what? God, I agree with you. We were wrong. And we're going to do it your way and not our way. We're going to turn from our sin. We're going to turn from our mistake. We're going to turn from what we've been doing. So Jesus says, I want you to remember, I want you to repent. And then he says this, he goes, I want you to repeat. He says, I want you to do what you did before. 
I think this is important because what Jesus says is, I want you to do what you did before. He does not say, I want you to feel what you felt before. So Jesus says, hey, there's something that you used to do that you're no longer doing, and what I want you to do is remember. I want you to remember back to the early days, church. I want you to remember back when you had a white-hot passion for the Lord and you had a white-hot passion for reaching people who were far from God. I want you to remember what it was like in the early days when you didn't see the people in your community that believed something different than you as your enemy, but you saw them as people who were loved by God, that God desired to reach and to save, just like He reached you and saved you. Remember and repent of your callousness. Repent of your forgetfulness. Repent of your unwillingness to take the love of God outside the walls of the four church. Repent for making the church all about church folks. And then he says, and go do what you used to do. And so I think when Jesus says, you have fallen, that you have fallen from your first love, what I think he's saying is, hey, church, you don't love people like you used to love people. You don't love those who are far from God like you used to love people who were far from God. And what's interesting then is Jesus gives them the ugly. The good is that they work hard and they endure and they've not grown weary. The good is that they actually have good theology and they love the truth. The ugly is that they've lost that loving feeling. And then Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5 to 7, here's the ugly. If you, if you don't, if you don't remember, if you don't repent, if you don't go and do what you used to do, if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus goes, here's the ugly. What I'm telling you are not suggestions for you to think about. I'm not offering you some strategies that you might want to get together and think about implementing in your church. What Jesus is saying is what I'm giving you are commands that need to be obeyed and followed. And Jesus tells the church, if you don't remember, if you don't repent, if you don't repeat what you used to do and love the lost the way you used to, he says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. If you remember from Revelation 1, that the seven stars in Jesus' right hand represented the messengers of each church. But the seven lampstands actually represented the church itself. So what Jesus is literally telling the church is, if you don't love me enough to follow me, if you don't walk joyfully in submission and obedience to me, I'll just remove your lampstand. Which Jesus says, I'll shut the church down. You'll no longer be considered my bride. You'll no longer have a lampstand in the heavenly places where Jesus dwells. You still might gather on a Sunday morning. But Jesus says, when I walk among the lampstands, yours won't be one that I walk 
along. And you might go, man, that sounds really harsh. Like Jesus is talking about shutting the church down? And see, I, I think there's really two ways to go about doing church. Uh, one way to do church is you can do church to please the heart of people. Uh, that you can make sure that you have all the latest, all the greatest, all the best, all the best ministry options, all the things to keep people happy, and people will come and people will love it. But the better question is, what does Jesus expect of the church? What does Jesus desire of the church? Are we pleasing the heart of men or are we pleasing the heart of our God? And what Jesus so clearly reveals to us is he so cares about people who are far from him that to a church that just loves church people, to a church that just works hard and serves hard and endures hard and loves the truth, he says, if you lose your love for other people, you lose everything. If you lose your love for people who are far from me, then what are you? If you lose your love for the people that need to be reached yet, then we might as well just shut this thing down because it's not even what it was meant to be. And see, verse 7 haunts me. Because what Jesus says is, for those who have ears... Let them hear. Now this is something that's used throughout Scripture, but it always indicates this. That Jesus is encouraging us to listen, but what Jesus is also saying is some of us won't listen. That to some this will just fall upon deaf ears. And one of the things that was interesting, one of the things I wanted to find out this week is whatever happened to the church in Ephesus, and sadly enough, there is no church in Ephesus. That it just kind of erased from the pages of history. And so we have to ask the question then, what does this mean for us? And I think in some ways the church in Ephesus sets an example for us. I think the church in Ephesus encourages us to work hard. That Jesus commends the church that uses their gifts and their abilities, their time, their talent, and their treasure to serve him, both in the local body and outside the walls in the community. That Jesus loves a church that uses their hands to serve him. And so one of the questions we all have to ask ourselves in response to that is, are we serving? Are we using our gifts and our talents and our abilities? Do we give more time to Netflix than we do to the Lord in service? It means that we as a church should always be ready to endure. As I was studying this this week, it reminded me of the early days of Redemption Church when we would load everything up in cars and vehicles and a trailer. We would pull the trailer to unload everything. We were up at the crack of dawn. We would sweat and we would work. We'd throw our backs out. We'd get hurt. We'd, we'd set up and then people would show up and complain about the setup that they didn't help with, but we just got finished doing. And then we would wrap it all up and go, let's do it again next week. And this, this move to, to First Pres has been great for us in the sense that we can use some of the energy that we used to have for setup and teardown. Things have gotten easier in many regards, but church, 
We don't ever get to sit back and put the legs up in the lazy boy recliner. The goal of the church isn't to be easy. And like, can we just admit for uh, just a second that our endurance, and I know it's probably close to 80 degrees in this room right now, but like our endurance isn't anything like what the early church went to. Like none of us and our families have probably been killed for the sake of Christ recently. Like none of us woke up this morning and wondered if we were going to get shot on our way to church. And yet Jesus says to the church, I love it when you endure. Don't grow weary. Keep working, keep toiling, keep serving, keep sharing your faith. I love it when you do that. He says we cannot become casual about the truth. It's important for us to read the Scripture. It's important for us to know the truth. And sometimes we have to defend the truth. The way we say it at Redemption Church is we have issues at Redemption Church that are open-handed issues. There's things that we will talk about. There's things that we will debate. But at the end of the day, we would never break fellowship if someone disagreed with us in this way. And to give you an example of that is somebody might go, well, hey, should I listen to Christian music or secular music? And I go, I don't know, I think it comes to the heart. I think it comes down to uh, what is worship and what isn't worship. Because I've heard some really great Christian music, but I've heard some really horrible Christian music. And some Christian music are just glorified prom songs to Jesus. And I don't think he listens to them. And, And then I've heard secular songs that I thought, you know what, that exactly reflects what I feel in my heart, this moment, in Jesus, I need you. So like, if you're like, hey man, I I have a secular radio station playing in my car, open-handed, homeschool versus public school, be wise, make a great decision. Listen, you guys at Redemption Church use the ESV, but I really love the New New King James Version, go for it. I just don't get all the V's and the doubts. But then there's close-handed issues. Or some go like, well, you know, that whole like Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, can we just translate that to like, he's one way? Like, can we take a little Oprah theology? Jesus is one way, he's one truth, and he gave one life. And we go, no, no, see, that's a close-handed issue for us. We are unwilling to compromise the gospel so you feel comfortable. And we can love you, and we'll encourage you, but like the whole like saved by grace through faith, yeah, that's a close-handed issue. Like we've had people ask us before, hey, would you baptize our baby? We would just really, it would help us if you would baptize and not dedicate our baby. And that's a close-handed issue for us. We just go, hey, we think baptism is a decision that you go, hey, I've said yes to Jesus, repented of my sin, and dedicated my life to following him. And then I also choose to be baptized. And like your kids are probably smarter than I was, but at like one or two, I wasn't ready to make that decision. So that's just kind of a closed-hand decision for us. And we live in a day and an age where we don't want to offend anybody and everything's politically correct, but what Jesus says is sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand and say, this is what walking in obedience means. This is what walking in the light means. And hear, hear me, church, I have to say this. I would rather have us be known what we're for than what we're against. And I think the church has done a bad job of that. I think churches are more known for what they're against. Like, can, we can't drink Pepsi, and we can't listen to this, and we can't 
do that, and we can't watch Disney because Daffy Duck doesn't wear pants. And I'm like, never seen a real duck that wore pants. And why are we worried about what Daffy Duck wears? I mean, like, I'm just confused. And so I'd, be rather, I'd rather be known as a church that loves people, a church that loves our community, a church that says we're all hurting and we're all broken and Jesus is the way. A church that says none of us are perfect and there's room for one more just like you. We want you to know Jesus and walk with Him. I'd rather be known for what we're for than what we're against. But it also means this. It means church, if we lose our love for those who don't know Jesus yet, we lose everything. Everything. It means that there's this propensity in the church that the older our faith, the older that our faith gets the colder that our love becomes. And there's this thing in the church where the church just kind of starts looking outwards and eventually starts looking inwards. It says, hey, it's all about our Bible studies. It's all about our small groups. It's all about the people who show up in the room. And the people out there, those are our enemies. And we don't love them and we don't care for them. In fact, we have to protect ourselves from them. It means that we, we talk about we love the Bible, but the question is, do you love people like the Bible says to love people? But we'll say things like, well, we're just about speaking the truth. Well, are you about speaking the truth in love? Because most people who are passionate about speaking the truth forget the love part. It means we say things like, oh, we want to have really good doctrine, and I think you should. But when was the last time you listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life? It means we can read good books by people who are famous for, famous for loving Jesus. But we can read books about sharing our faith. But the question is, when was the last time you actually shared what you believe with a person who doesn't love Jesus? Church, we cannot become casual about our love for Jesus. We cannot become casual about our love for one another. And we cannot let our love for people who haven't been saved yet grow cold. Because what Jesus reveals to you and what Jesus reveals to me is that price is too high of a price for the church to pay. If we lose our love for people, we lose everything.